I can. Can you hear me? Oh my gosh, this is so much smoother. We're, I'm getting better at this. Okay. Last time, last two times, it took me like the first ten minutes to <laughs> to get that the host on and listening. I think it's pretty funny that you and I have been on, talking on Twitter for I don't know seven eight years now, and this is the first time we've ever spoken to each other. That's right. That's right. That's true. Um, that is something. Twitter it creates sort of postmodern relationships that you, you just don't like. A, how many like I guess the equivalent to this would be like a long time ago when people like doing letter writing and stuff right. like that yeah. for a long time. Uh, I think spaces will change that a little bit too. I think spaces um, and uh, whatever Clubhouse was before that. Yeah, well, and I guess for companies, you know, if you have a remote first or hybrid first company, you probably are doing Zooms and things with people you've never physically met. And maybe 10 years in the future, you will. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, when me and Carl first started blogging together, it was like years and years before we ever met in person. How did, how did you guys first? I was leaving rude comments uh, and just <laughs> arguing with him. He was blogging there and I was like, you're wrong. This is ridiculous. You're missing this, that, and that. And I, he would email me politely and thoughtfully, as Carl does, and I would just keep arguing with him. And then eventually he was like, I have to do some work stuff for a while. I can't write for a little bit. Do you want a guest blog here? And that's that's how I started. It is funny how a lot of relationships are almost formed better online if there's an initial disagreement and fighting versus yeah. like you kind of softly agree and, okay, there's nothing interesting about that. That's right. I think that it sort of like uh, carves out like a mutual respect back yeah. and forth. And you learn from each other and... Uh, you know, that that's something we've definitely had in our online relationship is I think you come at things very differently than I do. Um, not in terms yeah. of like we, we disagree all the time. We do disagree sometimes. But, you know, you have a tell me if you think this is characterization is accurate. You have a very you take a very granular approach. Sometimes I think this might yeah. be um, a finance Twitter versus economist Twitter thing, too. But like you often are reading about what companies are doing in their uh, like their financial statements and what are their executives saying? Would you agree that that's like a, a like a substantial part of your approach to understanding labor markets and stuff? Yeah, definitely. And like when I think about electric vehicles now and it's like, okay, there's actually a lot of like real news flow here. It's not just activists talking about the future. And so, you know, you can't like maybe you, know, you tell me an academic economist might look at 30 years of data and do a regression, whereas there's, you can't really do that. So you're trying to make, you know, decisions and come up with ideas based on limited data and short-term trends. And it's going to be wrong sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that is like a, a major between the economist approach. We're looking for like the data and like at, at a minimum, we would want like a survey or something like that. Right. But I do think that there is a lot to learn from what individual companies are doing, but it's sort of a, it's a, it's a finance guy skill because you got to know who the companies are. You've got to know who's important. You've got to know where to look um, and you got to know when to like sort of downgrade what they're saying because they're talking to your book versus like take it seriously. Well, it's interesting because for the discussion, the reason we're doing this remote hybrid work, you don't have 30 years of data. And, and so maybe you're kind of stepping out a little bit versus what you typically would do. Absolutely. There's a lot of ways where I'm doing things now that I would not have done before because you're kind of stuck. Like, for example, like when we talk about where are people going to move because of remote work, like economists constantly say, oh, you got to look at revealed preferences, not stated preferences. Like, Look at what people are doing, not what they're saying. But my argument there is like people say that if people say they want to move because of remote work, like that's substantial. You should consider that because there's a lot of constraints on them in the short run. And I think that that's going to be, you know, that's going to be very telling. If people say, I want to move out of this area and remote work is going to let me do that. And I'm not doing it yet um, because like, you know, I think in part because the remote labor market hasn't fully evolved yet to make them feel secure in those decisions. I, I don't think we should give that zero eight. I think that's pretty important. Right. And I think. Yeah, and I don't know if you've talked about this as much, but maybe in the short term, people are moving to a suburb in a big metro 10, 20 miles out to sort of to hedge their bets. But as this marketplace gets developed, you don't have to be in a suburb of New York or California. You can go, you really, I don't know, I hate saying Boise because like, not most people in Idaho, but you just have more options available to right. you. <laughs> well, let me ask you what you think about that, because that was one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about today was, you know, where do you think? Where are the geographic effects going to be? Where are people going to move to? Where are they going to move from? What is your sort of the state of your thinking on that? Yeah, I, I think I would start by saying my perspective is colored by being a 40-year-old married person with two kids. And so, and, you know, most of for us, our careers have been this first environment. That's been the base case. And so we can't come into this with fresh eyes the way maybe a 15-year-old can think about the future. And so for us, it probably is like you say, oh, well, I don't have to be super close to an office or deal with this commute. I'm going to you know, move a little bit farther out or make a few tweaks, but still kind of keep this framework. It's sort of like, you know, early television was like, 
they didn't know what TV was as a medium. They just thought about it relative to radio or, or, or theater. And so they made small tweaks and, and sort of copied or iterated based on what he knew. And so, you, you know, I, I think that we're going to sort of make these iterative changes and it, maybe you get something very different 10, 15 years down the road when you have different people who are all, you know, remote natives or something, um, internet natives, that kind of thinking. So I, I think we're going to be kind of a hybrid just because we're, we're, we still are tied to the, the way things were. The comparison in TV and radio is interesting. Um, I think that that's right. It's like, you know, they, they like one thing changed and it's like, all right, how do we do the exact same thing we were doing, but with this one sort of constraint loosened? The other place I look to is like automobiles and like, you know, people be like, well, you know, the automobiles, they, they're like horses, but they're faster, but they're not as good on dirt roads. So obviously that's going to limit their appeal. And it's like, that's such short term thinking because like, sure. I think it was true for a long time that automobiles weren't as good. Maybe it even is true today. I don't, I don't know what the best horses and the best cars do off-road. But like it was like, but then we got roads and things changed. Yeah. And you don't want to do that kind of short-term projecting to really think about the impact of this. Well, and I think a lot of the big companies we're looking to for guidance on remote work, whether mostly tech companies since they just rule the world right now, it's like, okay, they've operated a certain way for 10, 20 years. And a lot of them have huge office spaces. And so they're going to have to adapt these thousand-person companies. but to the extent we do get a remote first Facebook or something five, 10 years from now, they don't have any of these constraints, but it's going to take a while for those companies to get built. That's why I think this is sort of pro-competitive in a way, because like now having a, like if you're starting from scratch, you declare your work remote work policy and then grow and your, your workers endogenously select to be the kind of people that are a good match for the way you want to build your company. Right now, people have like, it's almost like they've got legacy workforces, right? Like, yeah. here's our policy, but here's our workforce. And like, there's no company that's going to be dealing with a workforce that's happy. I think unless you give everyone sort of like, do whatever you want, and I don't think that's going to really fly that often, uh, you're going to be pissing off a huge share of your workers. And so like, that's, that's pro-competitive because new company, it gives them like a leg up in a way that they didn't used to have. Yeah. And I I sort of am amenable to the idea that maybe it's really hard to scale a remote first company the way, it, like, are we going to have 50,000 person remote work companies? I don't know, but I think it's very easy if you are five, 10, 20 people. And so maybe you're going to get a lot of smaller firms that aren't building massive platforms, but just are working really well with the platforms we have. Like, okay, you, you have your Apple and Google smartphones and use all these cloud services and you're just leveraging what's already been built by these other companies. But I think also, if you think about like mid-tier companies, and even when they start to get larger companies, what we may see happen is sort of like changes in the nature of the firm in the sense that like, you know, it might be hard to scale a remote accounting department, legal department, marketing, um, software development, uh, IT. And so maybe you don't do all that. Maybe you specialize in like your core competency of software development, and you sort of go outside the company they work with an accounting firm and a legal firm and like uh, a customer service and, you know, or independent workers or whatever. Like, I think that there's something about remoteness that's going to lend itself to that, that, that might, might lead us to have like fewer sort of mega companies and more specialized companies, at least on some margins. I mean, obviously there's still going to be mega companies. Yeah. And I think there's sort of, you know, maybe in the past, like the, something like the chief economist of Goldman Sachs, like that position exists in a certain framework and they, they leverage, hey, you're talking to the CEOs, you're talking to other companies and clients and your trading desk and analysts, and you sort of sit at the intersection of all these things. And then you have this high position in a firm and can pontificate with all of that information and data that you've collected. Whereas now, you know, you could be someone like you and me, where maybe you have a network already and your contacts are kind of all over the place at all different sorts of firms. But because you have a Twitter platform and a Substack and whatever, you can be that chief economist of Goldman Sachs type of persona and type of um, you know, pundit without having this huge infrastructure that's supporting you or this huge single firm infrastructure that's supporting you. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, weakens the within firm ties, strengthens the out of firm ties. It kind of, it's sort of like surprise. Like when we talk about some of these, I don't even want to call them secondary, but like longer run dynamics, like they all seem like things that a lot of people would cheer. Like it's good for new companies, you know, bigger companies are going to struggle with it. Like it weakens within firm ties, strengthens between firm ties. Um, it seems to be leading to a higher quit rate. It lets people like move outside of like uh, NIMBY cities. Like these seems like things people would cheer, but like, I don't know, maybe I'm sort of slanted here because I think we both know I'm extremely optimistic about this, but do you think on net the commentary is overly pessimistic or do you think that they're like tracking correctly? I think it's hard to, and you've talked about this, disentangle sort of temporary pandemic things that we're dealing with, with this structural change that, you know, is going to happen to some extent. And it's like, oh, well, 
horrible. You're just going to sit in your house all day and, you know, you're not going to see your coworkers. It's like, no, that's, people are going to go out and like do things. It's just that, you know, for the past 18 months, we've been living a certain way. And it's also, I think it's that whole idea of like introverts succeeding in the workplace versus extroverts. Like we have a certain model of what works in the workplace, but that's based on the way it's been. And you've had to do the office talk and chat up your boss. It's like, well, that's because it's rewarded a certain kind of thing. And maybe this, this new way will resort, re- reward something else. Yeah, we've heard a lot of uh, people who, uh, like there was some a survey was done by Slack and they found that uh, that uh, African-American employees were much more interested in staying remote, even though they had a lower propensity to be able to work remote, which you could see is like, you know, uh, an unfortunate bias in, you know, the current occupational mix. But if they can work remote, they're more likely to want to stay working remote. And I do think that reflects the sort of changes in within firm dynamics about like, how do you get ahead? What's valued? And it's sort of like more meritocratic and meritocracy is kind of like uh, less like we think of these, these social networks, these old boy networks, like the, the schmoozing and stuff. Like, I think a lot of people say, Oh, I can't live without that. That's how I got out of work. Like, that's like a good thing. But like, I think they're sort of exclusionary in some ways. And, and that sort of reflects that reshuffling of how work is valued within the office. Yeah. I remember I worked for eBay for a year in 2004, 2005, and I was 22, 23. And eBay at that time was kind of an interesting culture because you had still a lot of the pre-IPO employees who had done really well and were hanging out and just kind of like, you know, chilling and just collecting their, their RSUs. And, and, you know, you didn't have to work as quite as hard. And then you had a lot of newer employees who were kind of coming in after Meg Whitman, who were Stanford MBAs, and they saw this big company that they wanted to make their mark in. And there was sort of this power structure between the two of them. And then I was this random 22-year-old, you know, new employee, and we didn't have a formal sort of analyst training program or anything. And I was neither a long-time employee nor a Stanford MBA, and there just wasn't really a good way for me to get connected, I felt. Or maybe I just didn't have the skills to do it in that culture. And so I, I do think that we sort of downplay how the existing culture doesn't work for everybody, and maybe it doesn't work very well at all, but it's just worked a certain way for a long time, and we just can't imagine something different. Yeah, I think your sort of life history in a couple ways gives you that unique perspective that I think is very valuable and often missing in like the kind of um, uh, commentary at social circles that we have, you know, you're a family guy in Atlanta who, you know, tech big company culture didn't work for him and went sort of independent. And that's like, it's unique in like five or six different ways. Do you think that, do you think that your identity shapes a lot, your viewpoint and, and sort of gives you a resistance to kind of like, you know, like people like project things that are happening on Twitter to like the real world. Uh, do you think you've got a more real world view? I think that my lifestyle is probably closer to the, the median upper middle class American, which doesn't make it right or wrong, but like, I'm not a single, you know, renter pundit who's 25 in New York city. Like, so, you know, I, I live in the burbs in Atlanta. Um, I've got kids in public school. I'd have two cars. So I, again, I don't know if it's better or worse. Maybe, you know, being a Manhattan urbanite is the way to live. And, but I think that my perspective is maybe closer to median dollar being spent in the economy. And, you know, I don't know. It's uh, it's just a different perspective, I guess. I see it in your writing, definitely see it in your thinking. I find it valuable, but maybe that's just because I am also closer to that median person than uh, um, than all of my own commentary. It tends to be that I say, oh, that sounds right, but maybe that just maybe that just sounds right to me. And later, later on in this discussion, we'll invite some listeners to put us both on blast for being uh, <laughs> well, out like, of touch suburbanites. Like when, uh, when Powell, the Fed Chair Powell, was giving one of his press conferences, maybe in April or May, and he was still talking about the pandemic and how people were like locked in place. And I'm like, Everyone I know is getting vaccinated and, and like moms are meeting up and people are doing stuff. And like, I don't like maybe in DC, that's what you feel or have to say, but that's not the reality that I'm seeing. And so that was just a difference of opinion. And, you know, obviously the economy was recovering much faster than officials appreciated. So I think there is value sometimes being in those bubbles and having more of a suburban outlook on things. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, and I think, you know, you can look at a bunch of economic stories where things like that happen. And one where like, you know, I would count myself as being caught on the outside of it was like, you know, the reaction to a lot of places to trade shocks and the China shock, I think that a lot of people uh, sort of downplayed that because it wasn't clear enough in the data. And then like, you didn't really listen to enough of the stories about how places are being kind of hollowed out. And I do hope that we've learned a little bit from that about, you know, listening to, you know, listening to other perspectives and listening to other stories of how places are, because I know that we're all data-driven people, but a lot of times our, our data is driven by what we, you know, what we find plausible is driven by what we see around us. Right. I do, yeah, I do think the big bias that's probably structural, and I don't know how we can really change that, is the whole college-educated bias and everything. And you know, most of us, certainly if you're an, an important pundit or policymaker, you're well-educated. Everyone you know is well-educated. 
and it's just hard to get out of that mentality. And I don't know if we can. Um, and I think data is the best we can do, but that's it's still not good enough, I think. Yeah, you know, Matt Bruning talks about this kind of paradox because there are people who, you know, say like, well, you know, we really need to like elevate those voices and listen to those voices. And he argues, that, well, you know what, like anyone who can communicate in a clear and like if you give them a platform and they can communicate in a way that's like really understandable and like compelling to people, they're sort of like by definition, not quite that outsider voice, right? Because like they, they must have uh, above average skills and like, you know, it's sort of like, it's like, impo it's almost impossible to make them in that sense. The closest thing is probably celebrities, like athletes and musicians and those types of people. They're, you know, I'm not saying they're not smart, but they don't have that traditional college background. And so it's sort of like, you've got college educated people and celebrities and it's, you know, one or the other. So you're saying we need to listen more to Vince Vaughn? <laughs> like, I mean, like a pastor like Dua Lipa. I have no idea what her educational background is. Maybe she went to Oxford for all I know, but it's like, you know, she's probably closer to that or a Kardashian or something like people yeah. might like to dismiss them as like frivolous pop stars, but you know, they've got a hundred million followers and they probably understand this stuff better than we do. Oh man. Listen to the celebrities. We're going to get, we're going to get blasted by the listeners for this one. Colin. They're going to, they're going to blow us up. Let me ask you a hypothetical. So let's say you have an 80 story um, office building in Manhattan and uh, it's been hollowed out just for the, I, this isn't most, obviously buildings, but like for the sake of granting you flexibility in your hypothetical, all your tenants are gone. You're in Manhattan. And I'm interested in your perspective on this because you are a businessman finance guy and you do think about things from like a, like a developer's perspective much more so than I think a lot of people do. So I'm interested in like how your view of remote work in cities and stuff affects this. And I think this is sort of a good, um, a good lens into that. What would you do? What would you do with your 80, 80 story building to, to adjust to the future? Yeah. So this is kind of related. I have a neighbor on my street who does office leasing for cousins, which is a big commercial real estate firm down here. I'm pretty sure they're nationwide, but they're big down here. And I asked him, oh, we've got kids around the same age. I said like, you know, what's going on? What are you seeing in your world? And like, are you looking to redevelop your properties and add amenities, all the stuff? He said, oh, all we want is class A properties in rich amenity neighborhoods. We're not touching anything else, period. And it was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. Um, so I think the actual decision makers in that world who you know are pretty risk averse, especially during times of change, they're just saying, like, where are our class A, where's everything bulletproof? And, you know, they can sort of see that in their leasing rates and occupancy rates and rents. And I think they're going to wait to see trends emerge. So, like, I think Carl Quintanilla had a tweet last week or something where they looked at office leasing trends in New York City this year. And it was like half of all new leases are within like a five or 10 minute walk of, of major public transit hubs. It was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. So maybe you could start to see a theme where, you know, in urban centers, like, the very best amenity neighborhoods do okay. And then, you know, ones that are easily commutable from the suburbs can, can do well. And that becomes kind of the thing they build a really walkable neighborhoods 10 years ago. Yeah. And once we have an idea of like what's working, like, you know, sort of 10 years ago, it was like, Oh, San Francisco is the model. Like you've got all these millennials and tech companies and this is coming back faster than Phoenix suburbs. And then it was like, how do we make our properties and our communities look more like that? So I, I think we're kind of looking for those early trends of like, what places are still thriving in this pan remote hybrid world. And then once we know what that looks like, then it's like, okay, how do we turn other places into this? And then that becomes the trend people chase. It's very interesting. It sort of paints a picture of developers as being pretty reactive and yeah. like, and not really um, doing like, not really doing a projection of like, well, here's what's changed. Um, I have a strong view of that. And so let's project into the future. Is that sort of your view of developers? They're very like, they'll look at what's been and what's happening and not, not really step step too far into the future. Yeah, I think they're the ultimate conservative and then and then momentum and trend Jason. And so, you know, I think another couple quarters and things get a little more interesting because then you'll have a solid year or two of new leases and you can see like, okay, where are leases being signed? Where are leases not being signed? How are activities changing in different submarkets? And once we have, you know, that picture and first you'll just need the data and then you'll need people like us to sort of create narrative around it. And then it kind of can flow through and become gospel that everybody else believes in. So you're not stuck in the developer cautiousness world, though. Uh, so you get to leap out into the future. Tell me what you think. What do you think is going to happen to the suburbs? Because, you know, this is going to change them, right? Yeah, like if I were a developer and said, like, what's the most interesting thing in commercial real estate to you right now? I would say, like, where are, and, it, and it's very self-serving, but I also think that there's like a good market reason for believing that my self-servingness is the right thing right now. Where are relatively high-income, well-educated, 40-year-old-ish households moving to? And, you know, where are those places where the, the commercial amenities nearby are not very good? And so 
you know, you've got a suburb that maybe was kind of full of baby boomers and then now they're downsizing or selling and then millennials are moving out and taking their homes and maybe investing them and rehabbing them. But the local amenities are like strip malls and office parks that haven't gotten a lot of investment in 20, 30 years. Like that to me is the most interesting because you can kind of create, especially if the existing strip malls and office parks are kind of dying or they're not very good, you can buy those properties cheaply and then put money into them to turn them into, you know, kind of mixed use amenities, both retail, you know, dining and office that can serve as hubs for the community. It's the total opposite of the developer's perspective then, because the developers are like, okay. uh, they're horrified. They're like, I need to be in class A. What is the home run that I know is safe? And you're right. saying like, where is the, where are the gaps? Where, where are the sort of places that are weak now and that are going to be stronger, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so, you know, if you own a whole bunch of urban office buildings, you're just saying like, oh my gosh, like I'm trying not to lose money on what I have. But it's, you know, if you're saying like, where are the interesting development opportunities, areas of growth, that to me is where the world is going because again, like you already had the millennial demographic story that we've been talking about for five or 10 years. And now you've got this hybrid remote story on top of that. Um, and it's sort of like, how do you monetize that to, to the best of your ability? I really do think that it's sort of like if you could have realized in like the mid nineties, even maybe like 1990 or whatever, if you were like, oh man, I got to start buying up property and making investments in like urban, the big urban downtowns, like you would have just made a killing at it. Yeah. And like, but like, it took developers so long to like, and you know, you can slow prices and suggest that there's, you know, price growth going up. They're always a little behind the curve. And it's like, it, it feels like that kind of moment to me where like people should just be scooping stuff up and being adventurous. It doesn't feel very adventurous. So one of the reasons I kind of got into the way I think about things in general was like in the early 2010s, really looking for something outside of the, of the 2008 recession to like believe in. And that was when like kind of like the walkable neighborhoods and millennials and tech jobs became the big story that you know we were talking about as the future of the economy. And I was thinking, wait a minute, like I graduated college in 2003 and my first job happened to be in downtown Los Angeles. I wasn't making very much. And at that point, downtown LA, like there were a few signs of things getting better there. Like they had built the Staples Center where the Lakers and Clippers play. And there was talk about really investing in downtown. But I mean, I lived in a low rise two story apartment with mostly Hispanic working class families and my rent with my roommate who was a grad student at USC was 1500 a month. So we each paid 750. And I was thinking, wait a minute, I kind of bought into that walkable money lifestyle, but that just didn't really exist when I was coming out of college. And I didn't think about it in any kind of structural way. It was just like, well, my job's in downtown LA and I don't want to have this long commute. So I'll live at a, you know, apartment complex like that. And so it was like, huh, okay, well, and then you learn about the, the demographics of millennials. And it's like, you know, five, 10 years after me is when the big surge in demand is going to be. So kind of like my state of life is it makes me an early adopter to some extent. And then, you know, inevitably demand will follow just because I assume people younger than me will have my preferences when they get to my age. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a good, you're sort of walking around looking at the world and thinking about it is much more important than I think. I, I don't know. Maybe everybody does. I, um, but yeah. it doesn't seem like it when people, people write about stuff, they're like staring at the data right in front of them or something. And not a lot of like walking around and thinking about what, what's happening in life around me. It, I think it does. I think it does help. Although to be fair, you know, there are plenty of times that the anecdote driven way of the world oh, sure. catches people. Well, and I think, you know, as you'd like to hammer me, you know, thinking that like labor force participation might not recover. Like that was a hugely colossal policy mistake and analytical mistake. And so, and that was a function of thinking that 2006, 2007 was full employment rather than 99, 2000. Yep. And, you know, you and I weren't in that labor market back then. So that was where my anecdote sort of, you know, experience-based view was wrong. Yeah, that's a great example. Cause that is an area where it was like, you know, it was really economic aggregates that were like the most telling. Yeah. And not like just one, but like the way they all sort of moved together and they all were telling what felt like the same state. And then like, you know, state, something like, is like, you know, uh, boring as like state level panel regressions. I thought were really telling a similar story. So yeah, we shouldn't go too far in the, in the anecdotes are all powerful way of thinking things because that, that was definitely a win for the data and for econometrics and stuff like that. Yep. Do you have a number that you think is the percent of the workforce that's going to be fully versus hybrid? Do you have a number in mind or just, I, I almost don't want to have one because I feel like if I do, then it becomes this anchor that I would feel the need to defend. Like, I don't think it's helpful to sort of do like the team transitory or not transitory thing. Cause just, especially when there's just things are so in flux, you just get anchored to a view that maybe you shouldn't hold on to. And then three months later, it's like, well, if I admit that I was wrong, then you know, I don't want to do that. So then you just sort of twist the data to fit your narrative. And I, again, I, I kind of did that with the full employment thing in the 2010s. And I'm trying not to, to do that now. That's a good perspective. I'm doing the opposite because I got full employment right now. I feel like I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm going for, I'm going for it again. Yeah. 
Go for it. <laughs> I'm saying 20% fully remote, 15% hybrid. That's what feels right to me. I'm looking across a bunch of surface. So I'm throwing those numbers out because I, in my mind, you got to, we need to have an order of magnitude to understand, um, you know, what's going to happen. And I think 20% fully is a really big thing. I think that's when you really start to get these kinds of geographic shifts and these dynamism shifts and start to become important. Yeah. And my guess is that sort of, so the thing that just came to me is in 2010 or so, there was the whole like e-commerce versus physical commerce. And we, we thought of them as very distinct things. And it was like, oh, well, Barnes and Noble is business, Amazon is online. They're different. They're, you know, which world do we want to play in? And over time, we've seen that those boundaries get more and more fluid. And at this point, there's kind of just commerce, right? And like, okay, yeah. sometimes you order it and it shows up to your door. Sometimes you show up. So my guess is that could become this in 10 or 15 years. But right now we are thinking about it as two somewhat distinct things. That's a really great comparison. Uh, it was definitely that, you know, it was one or the other. It was Amazon versus the brick and mortars. <clears throat> and then it's sort of like uh, going back in the other direction. And maybe that's what will happen. We're going to have like, here's the remote company. Here's the not remote company. And they battle head to head and product space. And then one of them like, you know, settles into market share. And then they, the, the remote company starts, you know, opening up their first offices or something like that. Could be. I, I guess what I was like sort of using that analogy is that, like e-commerce kept getting better every three, six, 12 months. Like it got faster, it got cheaper, selection got better. They built warehouses, mobile apps, and the, the commerce experience kind of stagnated. And it feels like it's obviously still pretty early, but I would say like, is working in an office today better or worse than it was six, nine months ago? I would say it may be no different in the, in the best case. Whereas you look at remote or hybrid work and I would say it keeps getting better in terms of the number of jobs you can get that way the tools we have, the culture around it, you know, we're slowly going to get amenities built to support that lifestyle. And so I, I just think that if you look at where things are trending, I see one that's stagnating and the other that's improving. And so that's why I think that, you know, remote hybrid is going to gain share. Yeah, I think that's a great, a really important point. And people sort of do tend to take a look at like, it's amazing how well things did go, considering that everyone was thrown into the experiment overnight. But like, the evolution is, is ongoing and happening. And like, have you seen Nick Bloom's paper where the patents that mention remote work? Yeah. Like that's pretty telling. Like people are spending a lot of money uh, trying to figure out how to get it to work better. And like, so it, it is really interesting to think about where we're going to be in three years. What's like the remote work environment going to be. Yeah. I think we're at that again, we're at that point kind of like, maybe it was sort of obvious that like the walkable San Francisco thing was going to win in 2009, but there's still so much noise around. You know, we were talking about bank failures back then and stimulus, right. not you know the future of urbanism. And, and so I, th I think, We'll just have a lot more data and stories to tell in a year or two, and this will all be much more clear. Yeah, I, I think so. Let me ask you about some near-term things. Labor supply, is it coming back, um, and what's holding it back? Yeah, my thing is in the short term, the two biggest – like if you said to me, what are the two biggest things that have held it back over the past three months when maybe we've been surprised? It's you know people were just sick from the Delta variant, sick or quarantining or unable to work because of that, and you saw that in the – I don't know how to get that data. I just see other people tweeting about it, but the number of people who weren't working because of health reasons just spiked over the past two months. So I think that should really get better in Q4. And so that could be at least a million workers. And then it does seem like there's more, like people have a bigger cushion, financial cushion, it's due to, to you know, stimulus checks or maybe a one income household where that one worker has gotten a raise. Maybe they've been living at home. There's just, there's not as much financial urgency to take whatever job they can get. And I, I think that also will diminish somewhat over time. And so to me, those are the two biggest factors we're looking at right now. Um, if you, I, that's all I got. I don't know. I don't know if you other ones. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think UI was a big part of the story as well, but with that gone, um, those are the things that's holding it back. And I do think it's important that like those things aren't all independent either. Like the, like you can't say if we're looking at like a counterfactual of either continuing UI or ending UI earlier, you can't hold savings balances like independent from that. So right. if you think if you think the savings balances are what's holding back labor supply, you can't then be like, oh well, see, it doesn't matter if we had UI keep going because well, you know, a lot of people were making more in UI than they were off UI, and so that's one way that savings balances were continuing to go up. Uh, also, I wonder if rental, you know, the the eviction moratorium was part of right. this. Well, and I, I haven't seen like, data, but it seems like a lot of people were just not paying the rent. And a lot of the other qualitative reasons people give give for not working, it's like, well, you know, I didn't feel respected by my employer or. It's like, I believe you for those reasons, but it's also, if you absolutely need money to pay the bills, you make a different decision. So I, I think it's hard to disentangle those qualitative factors from the financial ones as well. I totally agree. And I think that people are sort of bringing the wrong emotion to this discussion where like, if I say someone's not working because they have savings, that sounds like I'm being like really judgmental of the worker right. and like I'm portraying them in a negative light. And like, that that's like anti-worker. But the way I look at it is like, 
if I say that all these like, you know, entry level, lower skilled professional services workers have the ability to simply choose to work less. To me, that's a very right wing story. Like that's a like Chicago school, Casey Mulligan theory of recessions. Like, I don't think, I don't think people have that ability in general to just be like, you know, we're going to work less. We're just not going to work as much in this household. I think that, you know, household finances are in normal times a lot more than that. People need to work and they like to work. And like, by the way, that's why things like food stamps don't reduce uh, labor supply very much because like people still need to work, still want to work. And our social safety net in general is not enough to really reduce labor supply that much. Like to me, that's a very liberal story, but I feel like I'm sort of accused of being like hard on workers when I say that a lot of savings is helping people stay out of the workforce right now. Well, I mentioned the story to you last week that we were at a benefit um, for a local nonprofit we support. And um, one of the things they do is they have a job training program for like auto service centers and mechanics and things like that that ship with Napa. And they had somebody who went to that program on stage telling a story. And, you know, he's just telling a story. I don't think there's any prompting about what he could say. And he was saying that he was working at a Waffle House before the pandemic hit. And then when, when that happened, he lost his job. And his the thing he said was, you know, I didn't want to just sit around collecting unemployment. So decided to look for a training program to do something else. And it, it was, you know, he was saying that from the standpoint of like, he felt like it would reflect poorly on his character if he just collected unemployment. And so I, I do think in America, especially, there is this, you know, we, most people feel like they should work. And if they're not working, they're, you know, says something negative about them. And it is kind of a cultural thing that we have. And so over time, I do think that, you know, we can debate about how long it's going to take. But in general, most prime age people who left the workforce will reenter. Yeah, I think that's 100% true. Even if we all admit that there's like some mysteriousness about the reduction in labor supply, nothing to me suggests long-term changes. I think people will be back. I think people will work and especially if we can get back to full employment. And, you know, that is one of my main concerns with this temporary tightness that we've created or that has been created is that it risks us getting back to real tightness where like not only are labor markets tight, everyone has a job. Like to me, labor markets being tight and millions of people not having a job, that's worrying. And yeah. I don't think you can disentangle that from the inflation that we're experiencing and the risk that that inflation creates for rates going up too fast. Well, and I think to the extent that we do have maybe two work, two person households where, you know, they have enough financial resources that one person can work part-time or less or for childcare reasons, elder care reasons. Like I could see the benefit of that, but in, I think it's in general to your point, like if it's just a person who left the labor force for pandemic related reasons and they, they, got, they, they left and they're just out, like that's probably not a good thing in general. Yeah, I agree. I think, it, you know, giving, and you know, I like to do that, getting people back to work. I like to do that via, you know, demand and pulling that back in yeah. getting to a sustainable long run full employment thing. So it's just, I feel like there's been too much. The arguments about what's happening have been like weirdly cast into uh, ideological like space that they don't really belong, frankly. Well, and I think, and I, and I get this too, there's a lot of um, tendency to defend all the, the fiscal measures the government took. And so anytime any variable, whether it's high inflation, the labor force participation that maybe we don't want in a nutshell is happening, you, you need to defend that, you know, via the fiscal stuff. And it's, Again, not a great tendency. Like it's to the extent you could have like truly agnostic economists, which is not really possible, just saying like this is happening because of this reason, that would be helpful. But it's just tough not to get dragged dragged into a, a tribal explanation for things. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And I think you know, I think part of what they get caught up in is fair, which is you know we we get stuck in econ Twitter arguing about like the things where there's contention, and so that ends up getting like in heated debates about labor supply and UI and the structure of the stimulus. Um, but like, this is why I try to every once in a while to step back and just like, just rebroadcast, like just to let everyone know we, we did a, this is doing a really, really good job compared to, you know, the great recession. This is like whatever mistakes we have. And I think that there are substantial mistakes, mistakes I worry about whatever mistakes we have are just so much better than the mistakes of the great recession. And so I think it's like, that's kind of like the healing we need to do. I need yeah. to together. We all need to come together and like remind each other that we're all on that. We're all for the most part in that boat together. Right. Yeah. I think we were all laughing like, oh my gosh, like if we don't do the fiscal thing again, then we're, you know, another decade even worse than we were before. Like that would just be devastating. And, and so, and I think you've, you've seen people who maybe were downplaying the inflation story a few months ago now saying, well, what do you expect? How could we reopen the economy without any inflation or well, it's still better than we had in, in 2010. And it's like, yes, these things are true but we should still talk about the issues we have and how we can address them or if we, that, if we should address them. That's right. And you know, that like inflation is inevitable and like, that's just part of what, of this, like I could buy that a little bit more if we had, if that would, have, if that had been the position or even yeah, nobody that, predicted this in February. 
like they weren't like like when I was warning about you know the structure of the stimulus contributing to excess inflation, the response I got was not that's good and fine and necessary. Right. It was like that's not going to happen. We're not going to yeah. have that inflation. And even if it does, it's totally like politically cool. And like you know, the thing I tried to warn about was like you got you guys are putting way too much faith in the Fed and and like assuming that they can be like totally agnostic to public opinion when they start to scream about it. I mean, you already see the dot plots moving. Inflation is already clearly like weighing on their minds. So I would have loved to have seen more of that up front. And even if had we gone with the stimulus the way it went, because like the cost that way, the benefit or the benefits of the cost, I feel like it was a non-debate. Like it was not discussed at all. It was just like the money's going out, shut the hell up. It's going out. This is it. It's over. Yeah. I mean, I think that I personally felt like we would have maybe six months of 3% inflation and then you'd be back to two, right? Because like, okay, used cars and lodging and all these these reopening things happen and then they roll off. And, you know, writing columns and tweets about that, it's like, oh, I do remember saying that. Or, and it's, it's gone on longer than I thought. And, you know, now that we're seeing persistent income growth and wage growth, and it's not, again, it's not a supply chain thing for me, but it's, it's not as clear we get back to two over the next six, nine months. And it's sort of policymakers, I think, are anchoring to some extent of like, it needs to get back here by this point or else. And we're kind of caught in this trap in that, in that regard. Yeah, and I think that trap is the exact the exact concern with inflation from the start that we should have had. Because I'm not that worried about inflation by itself. I don't think inflation yeah. by itself, even what we're getting, is like a problem. Problem. I mean, I get like consumers don't like it, making them mad. But my biggest concern is that the Fed overreacts to it. I think we should you know ride through it. I think it would have been totally fine for the Fed to at some point be like, you know what? Actually, we're going to stick at three percent, and we're going to stay at three percent. But they've blown their ability to do that now because like they're eroding their credibility. When they fail to forecast this inflation, well, yeah, I think that, I think it's right. Where they they started out by saying maybe we'll get a little transitory inflation, and they were they used the word transitory, and yeah. I think most people thought that meant months, not years. Yeah, and I mean, they're and like, they made okay, that we'll clear. get back to two by you know, and not too distant future. And now it's, I think we both agree that the anchor to two is the issue right now, not yeah. you know the situation we have. Yeah, and like you know, people can argue about what this transitory mean, but this is why I love the Fed's uh, SEP because they told us what they call transitory. Yeah, right? exactly. And now we can hold them accountable to that. And they can't play the games that other people sort of like to play, which is like, well, that's not what I meant by transitory. I meant something different. I meant, you know, maybe into 2022 or 2023. Well, so I, I think that even if they believed that we would get, say, a year or 4% inflation, if they had said that in February, like they would be like crushed by Democrats saying like, look, you're just stumping the stimulus. You're trying yeah. to, you know, so I don't know if they really had a card to play here, you know, given all of the political constraints. I think they should have been, you know, more open to the possibility of high inflation because it, now they're in a harder spot. Like they haven't yeah. where they are now, they have not made their job easier by downplaying it because they can't pivot to say we want to raise the inflation target if they wanted to. And I'm not saying they want to, but I think they should be thinking about that or they should have been thinking about that. But now they can't say this isn't that surprising or like this is what you would expect or like all is going according to plan because this wasn't what they expected and this wasn't what they planned. So it makes them seem like a little erodes their ability to talk about what's next. And I think the concern that I have is that they, they keep trying to say, like, we're going to see progress to defend. Like, basically, if we see enough progress, then we can, like, let this go. But I think we're going to get pretty hot data for the next two months. And so, again, if that happens, then it's like in January, can they come and say, oh, don't worry, now now another six months? Like, to your point, they've kind of burned their credibility. And maybe not just the outside world, but internally, they might feel like we've gotten this wrong. So maybe we have to respond. That's right. They're backing themselves into a hawkish corner. And that's what's sort of like yeah. so topsy-turvy about this whole debate. It's like, you know, the whole time I've been worried about more inflation, but from and like that's from a dove dovish perspective. Not yeah, I'd say like if anyone's listening, like I don't think either one of us is arguing for hawkish policy. We're just saying like based on the way they act and think, like they're leading themselves to do this. Yeah, exactly. I want more dovish policy. I want them to keep rates low. I want them to look through this inflation, even the inflation, though it's going to continue to surprise on the upside. My concern is that they won't. Yeah. Let's let's open it up a little bit. We've got some great listeners out there, and we've got we got Logan who's been had his hand up for a while. Let's let's invite Logan to speak here. Logan, what's up? How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, Logan. Good question on you know work from home, and you know I, I think we could get to about fifteen to twenty two percent in about five years with that. But what does the next kind of smaller suburban super city look like something like you know when, when connor was talking about you know in the, in the 90s irvine has become like that now what are the companies and industries that could turn kind of uh second tier suburb cities into kind of a mini version of what irvine looks like today i think to me that the it won't be coming from a company per se it'll be more about the collection of workers that choose to live in those places and then how developers respond to their needs so it's driven by workers not companies let me get a little nuts with my answer here uh this is where i put on my most utopian hat 
Um, I think we've got potential for totally new and different kinds of spaces and places. And if you look at like, you know, Irvine was built with a plan, right? Like Irvine was built with the idea that the way that suburbs were evolving uh, sort of like organically was not ideal. And so like, let's take a step back and take a more holistic plan about what a place should look like in this new world of suburbanization. And, you know, Connor, I think what you're saying about developers being like sort of cautious and like defensive right now is 100% true. And I think that's really backwards because I would love to see developers be aggressive and say, what kind of new spaces are opened up by this? Because in the past, if you were to try to create a new place, be a new small, anywhere from like a new, you know, community, small town, HOA style thing, all the way up to like small towns, to small cities, to big cities, you face this massive chicken and egg problem of like, you need skilled workers, but you can't get skilled workers without employers and you can't get skilled employers without skilled workers. So you're stuck. That chicken and egg problem is really, if it's not totally gone, it's weakened. And I would love to see people be bold here. I'd love to see more Walt Disney's, you know, who, who wanted to make Epcot a truly new kind of city. I'd love to see more futuristic thinkers, And I just, I haven't seen a whole lot of that. Um, so that's my sort of call to developers out there. It's like, let's think bigger. Yeah, there is, like this, this there is one thing about, sorry. there is one thing about Irvine now, because right before the pandemic, like literally right next to my home, there was a big, huge commercial business construction being happening, nine big buildings. And they're still pushing through that. So to Connor's point about the uh, 40-ish higher income crowd, they're still building out here on the commercial side in Irvine, even with the work from home models in an area where it's very expensive to live. Um, yeah, the, the only point I was going to make about you know, the conservatism is just that the whole institutional REIT model for commercial real estate of you know, people who own REITs just want their predictable cash flows and maybe they grow by 5% a year. And if you, you know, want to do this huge development with an uncertain future, that doesn't fit into a REIT type cash flow model. And that's maybe a, a constraint. And you, know, you hear urbanists talk about this with parking mandates and things as well. So I don't know how you could pass that. That's a really fascinating point because like, it's like the business model of development that fit the sort of slow, steady growth world we were in is not the business model that's going to take the best advantage of this world of fast moving change and, and different potentials and futures that we're facing now. So like, that is a friction. That is a friction to the kind of progress we need. And, and you know, while I say I'm like utopian on this, I do think that this is not new places is not a guarantee. It requires people to step up and it requires people to to get it done it's not like an equilibrium that's guaranteed yeah you almost, it's almost like a defensive we work versus reads where it's like at least they tried something <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah you gotta see something yeah I, I will say mark laurie have you have you read anything yeah, that the, he's talking about uh, a little bit he won't did he did the las vegas or the nevada desert idea yeah he wants to build yeah. like a brand new city in, in the desert um he was doing this but he was thinking this i think before remote work which i think is interesting because it like he should be pivoting. You know what I mean? Like, right. They should not worry about getting like big office skyscrapers downtown. I hope whatever they had like drawn up pre pandemic, they've sort of like crumpled up and thrown away. And they've got a new map that they're working with. Um, well, like if you wanted to do a brand new city, why not do like off of a highway in Kentucky or Tennessee? Like why the Nevada desert? Like give some infrastructure. <laughs> like You can kind yeah. of get there without having to build it on the moon on earth, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, there's so much open space in New England. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you don't have like the water problems. And, you know, especially in these places where population has been falling, um, maybe it's like a regulatory thing, because like, you do need, you know, when Walt Disney was building uh, Disney World in Florida, he was like quietly gathering up all these parcels, because he didn't want to trigger the holdout problem. And then he went like a huge you know, lobbying campaign to really give himself a ton of discretion, like Reedy Creek uh, economic development, where Disney World is located, is like, it's basically a company owned government, like they control the governance of it, they don't have to argue with the municipality, there's no zoning board, like they are the zoning board. And so I do wonder if that kind of thing could happen in New England, or if you got to go out in the desert to get that kind of flexibility. Yeah, it could be. If anyone here is working with Mark Laurie on that, haven't give us, haven't given me and Connor rings chat about this. I really, you know, I actually did 100% true. I cold emailed, I guessed his email is like Mark Laurie at walmart.com because that's where he was. I cold emailed him just because I wanted to talk with him about it. Uh, never heard back. I don't know if I guessed the email wrong or if he was just like, who the hell is this guy? Okay, let's say, let's talk to uh, David Lund, who his profile says is a Tesla yogi. Who knows what that means? We're going to add David as a speaker, see what he, his questions are. In the meantime, let's have some other questions, guys, in the audience. I see a lot of great people out there with Daryl Fairweather. We got Latiri, Matt Clancy. Any questions? David, go ahead. Hello. Yeah, this is David. Um, one of the things that I've noticed personally is that income from capital is starting to hit, you know, me personally, 
which is in that 98 to 99 percentile, whereas it's been focused on, you know, income from capital, you know, only in the 1 percent. And, you know, how that changes over the next, you know, assuming we're not in some sort of massive speculative bubble right now, it's definitely caused me not to, you know, be a worker anymore. My wife likes working. I don't like working. And we now have the money where it's not making any sort of sense to do anything you don't want to do. Are you talking about crypto, David? Or are you talking I think about it means like prices? retirements? Oh, okay. But yeah, like retirements. Retirements. Yeah. Reti- the fact- well, you're saying capital income, though. What kind of capital income are you talking about? I mean, income from, you know, stocks, bonds, you know, real estate, you know, things that you don't have to work for as opposed to labor income. Right. So I so I think there's two pieces. Is one is you look at where is the capital income growth located, and for the most part, you're talking about people who have a ton of stocks or a ton of housing. These yeah. are higher income workers. Those are people who higher higher income older workers. Yeah. Their labor force participation has generally gone up over time. So people over age 65 are more likely to work now than they used to be. And so um, I'm sort of skeptical that we're going to see like a huge bunch of retirements from this. What do you think, Connor? I guess I don't have any strong feelings. You know, I trust David that his his um, perspective reflects what he's feeling. Um, is, are there a lot of these people? I don't know. I, 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 I retired last year because of equities, but I think I'm in the very, very tiny, tiny sub 50 group. So there are people out there. It's just uh, fractionally small compared to I mean, I guess I could see, you know, people in maybe their early 60s where remember we, we said coming out of 2008 that people's home equity and retirement portfolios got nuked and so they had to work longer. Maybe this is a little bit of the opposite where. You know, you were 62, 63. It's like, okay, I can, I can make it work for another few years. And so I'm just going to do it now. We'll have to see. I, I'm skeptical. I think people will come back to work. I think that the, the higher skilled people are just working more anyway. Their jobs are easy. They like to work. You know, the, the 65 retirement age is like weakening over time. I think that structural thing is going to outweigh those sort of short run things. But it's definitely weird enough out there that who knows. Let me bring um, Daryl Fairweather in. Daryl is the uh, chief economist at Redfin. So my question is back to the conversation about the Fed, but also a bit more about bubbles. I don't see any problem with 5% inflation. Like inflation is fine as long as it's predictable. Maybe some of the Fed's credibility on being able to predict inflation is up in the air right now, but I just don't see anything wrong with that. What I'm more worried about is having the economy run too hot for too long and create bubbles. And I think real estate's an obvious place to start being concerned about that. I mean, I think it's too early, but I would definitely keep an eye on it. But there are probably other asset bubbles out there that we should be worried about, but we just don't know about. And there, I think the Fed can do a lot more on the regulatory side, but I just haven't seen a lot of attention paid to that, or maybe I'm not paying attention to the right thing. So I'm curious about what you all think about that. I guess my thought on real estate is, as long as mortgage rates are around three and you know, and GDP growth might be five to seven, it just seems like when real borrowing costs are negative, that that really helps with avoiding bubbles. Well, you gotta be careful. I mean, there's, you know, if home prices go up 50% from here, it's a different story, but underwriting is pretty tough. You get a lot of all cash buyers. There's so much income growth to offset any price appreciation that maybe is out of line. And so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't personally see a real estate bubble. Adam, I don't know what you think. So the thing that I would look for is like this excess exuberance in what's coming. Um, this is, you know, what Robert Schiller was saying about the previous housing market bubble. That like you started getting these crazy expectations, even after prices had gone up higher, people were like, prices are just going to keep going up higher. I mean, I think it's sort of, we're seeing the opposite of that today where everyone's like, these prices suck. They don't make any sense. And why are they even still going up? And you don't have this sort of like this mentality that like prices can only go up and it's a bulletproof investment. So just buy, 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 and just like, you know, like basically the mentality of the Bitcoiners, like pe- like you don't want that to exist for housing. And I don't see that. Do you see that, Daryl, in, in your data? I don't, I don't see that yet. I think it could happen if we see another couple of years of 20% year over year price growth. Like then I think people would start to expect that and that would be a problem that's just unsustainable. Uh, we, I think that there's a chance that might, we might see another double digit price growth next year, but I think it'll probably be lower than that probably more in the single digits, mid single digits. What I'm also worried about though, is just that housing is becoming more or less and less accessible to middle-class people. And I wonder if the Fed should play a role there. I know that inequality is now part, more part of what they think about and talk about more regularly. So do you think there's an argument to raise interest rates just to cool down the housing market? So it's not only people who are able to buy multiple homes right now during a pandemic when some people are still struggling to get back on their feet. Maybe there's an argument to kind of cool down the housing market just so it's more of an even playing field later on. 
So if we think about sort of the, the labor market channel, at least you raise rates, you're going to pull back income growth. And yes, that will you know reduce housing demand through the income channel. But the people are going to be most strongly affected by that are those with the weakest attachment to the labor market. I don't think that's going to be pro equality, reducing inequality um, in terms of like who's going to be the most interest sensitive um, on the housing demand side. I, I'm not sure whether, you know, the second home buyers are more interest sensitive than the sort of the uh, middle class buyer. So that seems like a really like kludgy sort of like probably going to make inequality worse way to deal with it. I'm actually have a little bit, even though we're de- de- dealing with like the, the craziest rising house prices we've seen in a long time, I'm a little bit optimistic about housing costs medium run because like remote work does open up the ability for people to move to more housing uh, elastic places. I think yeah, my I agree with about, that. Oh, sorry. About the affordability middle-class part is, you know, first zoning, which everybody knows about, but um, just in terms of like the labor, you know, material shortage, making it more expensive to build in general, that's a concern I have. And then the rise of build to rent, which maybe works out for a, an all in housing cost perspective, but if, you know, if the housing industry makes all the entry level price points, a build to rent story rather than a, an owner occupied story, it's like, we're just not going to create that product for people who want to buy anymore. I tend to see the, the, that is driven by expectations and demand and that like, you know, if people want to buy houses, they're going to make houses they can buy and that, you know, okay. that they're responding to what they expect there. What, what, what if, if the Fed raised rates, it just pushes down the 10 year yield lower. I mean, in the sense of inverting the yield curve, they did it too soon. I mean, everybody, everybody thinks the Fed can really manage this, but I mean, all around the world, you know, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, France, all their home prices have accelerated. The U.S. is the only one that's really lagging and Fed raising rates might not even be the what is needed. You just we don't produce enough homes. We have very low supply. We have very low mortgage rates. Uh, Housing tenure is above 10 years. Uh, this might be here for a very long time that can't be solved so easily by just the Federal Reserve raising short-term rates. Well, the, the broader idea I'm trying to get at here is that there are certain market failures in the economy. I think the housing market might qualify as one if you think that it's not providing enough housing for people. There's also childcare, higher education, and in a way when the Fed pumps more money into the economy, they're, and this is like a kind of market friction that they're exacerbating. So I, that's, I guess I'm just playing with that idea that Maybe the downside of the Fed keeping interest rates for too long is that it exacerbates these kinds of market failures. You know, I just think if we think about like that pushing aggregate demand up, here's how I would put a macroeconomist view on it. Like you push aggregate demand up and that like supply curves in a few markets start to bite in a way that's like painful for some people. But like, you know, that's running against the tension of when you push aggregate demand up, you get strong wage growth, you get strong median income. And so like, I don't think that the right trade off there is to like ease costs by keeping demand slack in a way that hurts people in the labor market. I think, I think that that just, that's not the way to address uh, inelastic supply curves where they exist. I think that especially when you can like look and see the regulatory causes, like childcare regulations are nuts. And like the fact that you're so strictly limited to, you know, the number of kids you can watch in a way that doesn't make intuitive sense to most people and in the fact that like you know in some localities now they're passing like regulations to require people college degrees like and the housing market obviously is you know under the thumb of the nimbys and like to me like to try to address those things with interest rates in a way that leaves workers off is just it seems it seems very backwards to me but the one thing you do mention there i think is, is real that we do need to think about is like i how long can house prices stay up this high before people start getting irrationally i do think like a sort of there's a thing that happens when prices stay, price growth stays, stays up high enough and people just start going nuts about it. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. Um, I mean, we saw it with the last bubble. Maybe the bubble from last time is still fresh in people's memories, so they won't get that irrational, at least not too quickly. But we're already seeing it locally. Like in Austin, home prices are up more than 40% since the beginning of the pandemic. And I know people are going to get hit with higher property tax bills than they would have expected coming from California. But hopefully, it's just not sustainable. Hopefully, people kind of realize the downsides of overpaying for homes. Something I wonder about housing is that everyone keeps waiting for baby boomers to downsize and open up that inventory. But there, I see a huge mismatch between what's going to come available and what like younger buyers actually want. It's like if you have this house that hasn't gotten a lot of investment in 30 years, and maybe there's a geographic mismatch as well. I, I'm not so sure it's as easy as like, hey, these people are ready to sell. These people want to buy. And it's a perfect match. I think it's going to be a, there are a lot of pain points making that work out. Oh, my gosh. You can 100% see that on the housing market sites. You can see that on for example, Redfin, you might say, when you're browsing the homes for sale, 
when you see this house that's clearly been lived in for 40 years without the upgrades happening, I guess mismatch is one way to think about that. that like there's a lot of houses out there that are sort of the, the boomers who didn't move and are finally ready to downsource, but those houses are not market ready yet. Well, it's a better remodeling than these institutional buyers like do have a role to play in terms of getting the aesthetic up to date and potentially doing some upgrades. You know, one, one thing about housing in this cycle that it's, it's a calming effect. There is no credit boom going on here. You know, every home buyer is legit. I know cash buyers, investors, but uh, anybody who buys a house, 30-year fix, fixed low debt products, rising wages, it's really hard to get a speculative bubble in terms of uh, credit expansion. Uh, unlike 2002 to 2005, especially, you know, I think arms were running at 34 to 35% of all uh, loans in America at that time here. It's like under 5%. And there's no speculative debt products out there anymore. So I think the fear with housing is just that total inventory just stays low for a very long time. The boomers never downsize. We have to wait maybe seven to eight, nine years before they have to start dying off. Their homes are very old, you know, especially in certain parts of the U.S. where prime age labor force growth isn't picking up. There's no real demand for that. So there's a lot of things to be worried about maybe for housing. But the one thing is that the home buyers now are legit and we do not see a credit facilitated boom with exotic loan debt structures. That's a positive for the housing market now. Yeah, yeah I can, in places like Austin, especially like the number, the current population versus those 30, 40 baby, year old baby members, there's just, there are way more newer residents. So it's, there's not even a one-to-one replacement. It's like there are three new residents for every one that's going to be selling or downsizing. So it's, you know, it's, I, I'm sure in suburban Ohio, you can get some great deals in five or 10 years, but that's not going to help in Austin and places like that. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Uh, you know, Logan, it was an interesting, I, you were debating Carl and um, Alan and a couple of people on that and um, whatever, you know, you might think about what's the right deregulatory the, the level and housing finance. I think we, I think definitely sort of glad that we're in a more conservative phase right now to be going through this insanity. Well, it kind of goes back to the point of there needs to be changes to the regulation in terms of zoning, in terms of um, getting regulatory approval for building new homes. All that's got to change. It's the only solution to get this kind of inequality, at least in a manageable place. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think what we got to do is we got to go housing market by housing market and just get everyone tweet really angry about the zoning regulations. More. That, there like are a lot of people that, doing that. But the way <laughs> that, that that Flexport guy just fixed the um, the shipping container things, I've never seen anything like that. How do we get more of that? I mean, I think the Biden administration knows they have what there what needs to be done. It was in their original um, plan. It just hasn't made it through Congress, and uh, it just makes me very what they, sick when I think about that. What do they have in their plan that's going to address these shortages that we're seeing right now? Well, on the zoning side, they were going to withhold funding from localities that have overly restrictive zoning. That was the broad wording that they had in their original plan when he was Biden when he was just uh, um, running for president. Okay, I thought you meant about the supply shortages, like the uh, Flexport guy was pointing out. You mean the zoning stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that like the lumber shortage, which is a temporary hiccup, it's already doing a lot better, and a lot of these other shortages in materials. Labor is one side that is probably going to be a pain point long run. Maybe immigration policy is a way to get at that, um, at least in the short term, and then maybe training programs in the long term. I'm not sure. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure about that, Connor. No, I, I don't know either. Uh, let's open it up. Troy Mix, University of Delaware economist. Uh, what do you got for us, Troy? Yeah, I mean, on this question of zoning, I mean, the question I had in mind was really kind of what regional policy experiments are folks kind of waiting and watching for that might solve some of these things like childcare or zoning or the ability to build new places uh, uh, in kind of utopian fashion. Uh, what are people like? waiting and watching for with some interests that you think might solve these. And I think that this was kind of being addressed by Daryl a little bit, uh, but I wonder if there's other ideas out there. On the utopian places front, I really just think we need someone to step up with a plan and say, here's what I want to do. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe that's, that's the last step actually. Maybe they got to start scooping up the parcels first. You got to buy, you got to buy up, you know, 15,000 acres with nobody noticing. And then you start, but it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Because you, you want to buy all the land, but you can't really buy the land unless you know you've got the regulatory approval to build a new city. But as soon as you say, I want to build a new city, then everyone's going to rush in and say and start scooping. Oh, man, Mark Laurie wants to build a new city in Connecticut, like in this area. Like I'm going to buy up all the vacant land and then make him – I'm going to be the last acre in the middle of his downtown and he's going to have to pay me a billion dollars for it. So there's a chicken and egg problem there. I, I don't know what the right way to, to cut around that is. But it's that's a – you know, I wish that people were talking about that and thinking about that. 
Connor, uh, what do you think? How do we get – what can Atlanta do or what can Georgia do to get new cities, new places? Or do you think that there's just so much – there's so much potential still in, like, the, the added development on places that are already growing that Georgia doesn't need new places? I think just – we still have suburbs that in a lot of cases haven't seen much investment in 30 years. And so there's so much you can do with dead malls, taking them over, um, you know, subdivisions that are going to hit their use, useful end of life over the next 10, 20 years that there will probably be a lot of, like, small scale retrofitting that adds up to a lot over time, but not a big splashy thing you can point to and say like, wow, look at all this excitement happening in outer Gwinnett or Cobb County. Oh man, a dead mall. How fun, how much would you guys love to own a dead mall? Wouldn't that be so much fun? All right, let's end it on the dead mall comment. Um, thanks Connor for joining us and thanks yeah, Daryl and Troy and Logan. Um, thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back maybe next week. Uh, so just shoot me a tweet if you enjoyed this and you want me to keep doing it. Thanks everybody. All right.